Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles with me this morning and open to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we will be in chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. We're in a series entitled, Love, Good News, to Believe and Receive Eternal Life. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ, as John, the author of this Gospel account, writes and tells us why he has written, I have written that you might Know that Jesus is the Christ, believe in Him, and receive the life that only He can give. And so I want to take us to this passage this morning, and I want to read for us this account that we will consider in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. John writes, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I saw a church sign recently that said this, I am going outside to stand. If anyone asks, I'm outstanding. Oh, come on, you got that. You see, it's not just preachers that don't know how to tell a joke. It's whole churches. Uh, It is beyond me how we come to believe that church signs can be helpful in this way. No one backs the car up to go, well, we just saw your sign. We had to come in. Now, this is on me. It's not on anybody else. I'm trying to tell a joke and it's not working. There's something within us, though, that that sign does represent. And it is an attempt to believe, or at the very least, make others believe that, in fact, we are outstanding. Sometimes we call it our Sunday face, right? Our Sunday best that we put before people. But the gospel tells us a different story. 
And this is the story that we must always remember to tell ourselves and to tell others. And the story that must be our continual testimony. It is the story of the one who was taken outside the city and stood up on a cross for us. So we don't have to be outstanding before God. Amen? That's the story of the gospel. And that's what I want us to see today in this passage in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. I've titled today's message, Cleaning House, Making Room for Jesus' Habitation in Your Heart. You see, as we saw in the first 12 verses of John 2, anything, as the wine did at the wedding of Cana, anything can inebriate us and distract us from experiencing God's real power at work around us. And we often make Christianity, quote-unquote, about everything other than what Jesus intended for it to be. And that's where John leads us today. But praise be to God, through Jesus, He has made a way for us to know Him and to abide within Him. And so this is what I want us to grab hold of today, that Jesus reveals God's work in salvation so that we might know it's all about Him. Jesus reveals God's work in salvation that we might know it's all about Him. And when we pick up in verse 13 of John 2, it's not long after, more than likely, verse 12, where they have gone at some point in time back up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. Now the Passover was an annual Jewish feast that they celebrated God's salvation in. It originated in Egypt when the Jewish people were enslaved and the 10th plague was that God would send an angel of death throughout Egypt and would take the life of the firstborn. But he told his people, if you will sacrifice the lamb and paint the blood over your doorpost, when the angel of death comes across it, if the blood is over the doorpost, it will represent your trust in me and the angel of death will pass over and your firstborn will be spared. Hence the term Passover. And so when we come to this point in the New Testament, Jesus arrives at the temple. He found things that he didn't like going on within. People were selling animals for sacrifice in the temple. And so the scripture records that Jesus made a whip of cords and he cleaned the house. He drove out the animals. He poured out the money, turned over the tables, and he ordered the people with the birds to get out as well. And his reasoning was simple. He simply said this. He didn't want the temple, which was intended as a place of worship, the place of worship, to be turned into a market of commerce. Now, in order to understand all that's going on here, we need to understand why are these people selling in the temple in the first place? That's important for us to understand. You see, many traveled to Jerusalem for Passover. It was one of the three annual feasts that Jewish men were required to attend annually. And so in their travels, if they lived at great distance, they would prepare that first lamb from their flock that was to be offered to God as a tithe, as a first fruits offering to represent God's provision and God's blessing to them. But if they lived at a great distance, a young lamb could not be expected to travel all of those miles and still be alive 
or even worthy of being a sacrificial lamb. And so the law made allowance for this by allowing them to sell locally their livestock that was the representation of God's provision for them and bring the money and at the temple they would then purchase an animal that would represent their family for the sacrifice that was to be offered in their worship. And that's what they were doing. People selling represented in the temple a legitimate business to those who had to travel great distances. And you see, the temple of that day had a very specific economy about it. The Tyrian coin was the only acceptable currency in the temple commerce. And it was used because it had the highest level of purity of silver of any coin. And so the many people from many different places with many different kinds of coinage would bring the money that they had gotten from the selling of their animal and they would exchange it into this Tyrian coinage so then they could purchase in the temple commerce these animals for sacrifice. And this could all be done at the temple. For a small fee. Due to exchange values, two or even three families would often go together because the Tyrian coins were so pure and so worth more than their uh, other uh, coins that they could often pool their money by one coin and a single coin would represent more than one family. But once money was exchanged into the Tyrian coinage, then they could pay their temple tax, which is an offering that they would pay. And, and listen, it's, it's not just a wrong tax, because even Jesus later in the Gospels will identify it and not condemn them for it. It was an offering that they gave once a year and then purchased their animals for the sacrifice. But we do have evidence of corruption in the temple economy. <gasps> no. Imagine that. Money and power... Surely not corruption, right? Matthew 21, 13 records in this same instance or one very much like it that we can draw from that Jesus referred to the religious leaders and to what was taking place as a den of robbers. Now let me introduce you to the religious leaders that were present. The first one's name is Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. In other words, he was the top dog in charge of the market. He was also the son-in-law of a man by the name of Annas. And Annas was the former high priest, and now you might say that he served the role of high priest emeritus, you know, uh, their uh, uh, exerting influence, but not the one directly exchanging in the conversation. We will later learn That these are the two men that personally interrogated Jesus before they handed him over to the Roman soldiers. So you're beginning to get a picture of who these leaders are among the Pharisees. The scripture never paints these men with a positive light. They're represented with less than the utmost integrity. And so we can easily imagine with these many points of connection and exchange that there was great opportunity for exploitation by opportunistic people, right? Many instances. And the disciples were so moved when they saw Jesus and they witnessed what was taking place. And and John tells us in verse uh, uh, 20. 
21, no, excuse me, 17, in verse 17, that his disciples remembered what the word had said, that zeal for your house will consume me. Now that is a citation of Psalm 69, verse 9, where the psalmist is actually lamenting his enemy's opposition to him. And the psalmist is hung up in a cave and he cannot go to the temple to worship with God's people because if he did, his enemies would catch him and kill him. And so he's, he's basically captured in a cave and, and, and they're hiding from his enemies and he's longing to be with God's people that he might worship in the temple. So the disciples, in seeing what took place, at some point, which I'll come back and address in a moment, began to understand that that is the same zeal that the psalmist had in the Old Testament was being represented in the Christ of the New Testament, Jesus, in the zeal that he held for the house of God that was consuming it. I mean, after all, when you read what Jesus did, a small disruption to the day, right? You don't easily forget an image like that that is emblazoned upon your mind. And so we would see that this would only become a small representation of the true zeal that would consume Jesus, that he might give himself for the pure worship of the Father through his own sacrifice. fact of the matter is, Jesus didn't like what he found in the temple. And his one focus throughout his life and throughout his public ministry, which we're introducing here, is his passion. It's his zeal. It's his ensuring that people didn't have to overcome unnecessary or additional barriers for access to God. That's what Jesus was so zealous to make sure people understood. And his focus was increasingly consuming him. You see, Jesus insists on a different priority as the defining activity in the temple. And that's important for you and I, friends, to understand how we worship God today. Jesus came into the temple and he destroyed false worship and the forms of religion that he might clarify the one true way to a right relationship with God. Now, this was obviously difficult to not notice what was taking place. So the religious leaders addressed him, verses 18 through 22. And when they addressed Jesus, they asked him, By what sign do you perform these acts? Who gave you the right to walk into our house and to do these things? That's what they wanted to say. But what they said was, Can you offer us a sign before we take you outside, so to speak? Now, it's understandable that they would offer these. First of all, they were responsible for what was taking place. And the Jewish people were under the Roman rule. And here's how the Roman acted. As long as we don't hear from you, and as long as you don't threaten us, we won't mess with you. But the moment there is a rebellion or an uprising, we will come against you with such force. We will overwhelm you, we will crush you, and then we will turn around and with bloodstains hand, we will wipe our nose and smile at everybody and go, all good here, no problems. That's how the Romans acted. And so the leaders who loved their little religious power didn't want word to get out to the Roman rulers that there was potentially an uprising in the temple because then they knew they would lose control. And control was what they loved most. 
And so they asked Jesus this question, why do you do this? And it's understandable because they claim to be waiting for the Messiah. I mean, the Pharisees were masters of what we consider the Old Testament today. The first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, you had to memorize them to even bear the label of Pharisee. They knew the word. They were familiar with the word. But when the word stood in front of them, like handwriting across a banner, they missed it completely. And so we can understand how they and why they asked the question But we also have more understanding from one of their own. Paul, or Saul actually is a Pharisee who would later become Paul, tells us in 1 Corinthians 22, the Jews are always looking for a sign. And Jesus said, there won't be a sign given to you except for the sign of Jonah, and you won't believe that one either. So we get some understanding from the backstory of what's going on here and what's really taking place that John is explaining to us. You see, signs prove that Jesus is the Christ, but that doesn't mean you can't miss the point. And I might offer that as a warning to each of us today. Just because we know so much and we're so familiar and It's so common to us. It doesn't mean that we can't walk in this house, use so much of the same vernacular as everyone else, enjoy so much of what takes place, and still not miss the point. Jesus points to the bigger object lesson that's present to answer their question. Verses 18 to 22. And he says this, why don't I just take this temple and help you understand this? Tear this temple down. And in three days, I'll rebuild it. That's his answer. Really? That's the answer you want to submit on this test. That's what the Pharisees are thinking. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll go with it. Because I know it's right. And the irony, again, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We don't want to throw them under the bus. Because that would do nothing but just justify our own Pharisaism. The temple that they were standing in had taken 46 years to rebuild and it still wasn't finished at this point. So here's what we know. It does seem a little out of realm or scope of possibility that Jesus could do in three days what an entire people, the most powerful empire of the whole world, couldn't do in 46 plus years, right? And that's what Jesus is appealing to. But the disciples, who also probably likely missed it at the time, and the reason I say that is because verse 21 and 22 tells us this, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, so John is giving us later insight back into what took place at this time. And he said this, that when therefore he was raised from the dead, At that time, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they likely missed it in the moment too. I mean, that much chaos and confusion can quickly distract you from everything. But when you think back on it, and you rightly apply the word of God to it, we can begin to see where they had more insight, and they begin to understand it in a new way. 
You see, what Jesus does here is he clarifies real authority for us. The question that was posed to Jesus was striking at the heart of the issue of authority. Who do you think you are walking into our house and doing this without our permission? You don't have the authority to do this. And Jesus says, actually, I do. I do. And he clarified his authority, not as immediate or earthly, but rather as ultimate over life and over death. You see, friends, Jesus' response to all of our troubles, to all of our questions, always answer much more than just our immediate concerns. He never dismisses our immediate concerns, but he always responds to us with so much more than only our immediate concerns. And he gives to us eternal promises and provisions for all of our temporary problems. That's the one who has real authority. Jesus' power over life and death proves that his authority is ultimate. And yet some, maybe you, still miss it. Still deny it. Listen, Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of religion. He said this in Matthew 15, that the religious leaders honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Matthew 23 is just like this massive blight in the Gospel of Matthew. It is an unfurling of woes, warnings against the religious leaders because of the way they live and how opposed it is to what they say. So in other words, what their lips are saying, but what their lives and what their hearts are really believing. And here's what he says to them. You preach one thing, but you practice another Your walk doesn't align with your talk. You put heavy burdens on people, but you don't give them one finger to help. You do all your deeds so that others will see you, not see Christ or God in you. And you shut the kingdom in people's faces because you preach good news, quote unquote, that puts on them twice the load of condemnation and ultimate damnation with no hope of getting out from under it. He tells us that you reverse everything that honors God so you can value unrighteousness most of all. You practice religion. You practice love for God without regard for anyone else. That's how you live your life. You wash clean on the outside, which is what we saw in verses 1 through 12 of John 2, where the six big jars were setting out so that people could wash the outside as they came to the wedding, the religious ceremony. He says, you wash the outside, but inside you are a vile, venomous, infected illness. You are dead inside. You make every claim of righteousness. You celebrate the good old days of yesteryear as if you've gotten the secret pathway, the back door to God, but you only crush the work of God in your own time by these very ways. And so the rationale, friends, of the religious leaders makes clear 
They chose unbelief. They didn't happen into it. They chose it. Because that's what religion leads you to do. You see, a mind that is set on worldly and fleshly glory, yes, even religious glory that is labeled with God's name, will never comprehend or see spiritual truths because they don't believe any sign that points to them. Ultimately, Jesus says, you are an evil and an adulterous generation and you seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah. And because Jonah happened so many years before, we can say this, to date, you've already missed him so far. You're not seeing what's already in front of you. And friends, what I want to propose to us today, maybe on varying levels by which we can justify the rising of our morality or integrity above their own, we are no different than the Pharisees with religiosity. You see, religion is not just something that some people deal with. Religion is what every person embraces when they deny God in Jesus Christ. Put a lot of different labels on it, and they wear it in a lot of different ways, but none of them are different from the religion that Jesus is speaking of here. And so that litany of Matthew 23 against the religious leaders is a warning to us as well of what religion does to our heart when we exalt and enthrone something other than Jesus Christ in our life. And that's why this is so important for us. But what we need to see is that Jesus cleans the house of the heart just like he cleaned the house of the temple, that he might inhabit us with the light of his righteousness that is true life for us. You see, John 2 demonstrates what we see throughout the gospel accounts. There is a tension and a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders and it is increasing continually all the way to his crucifixion when the tension seems to be broke, religion seems to win, but Jesus will reign. And that's the tension that brings into our heart the same conflict between the truth claims of Jesus Christ and the religious strongholds that we have within us. It's the same for us, and until we die in Him, who is authority over religion, who is more exalted and worthy than religion, who holds authority not over brick and mortar to build a temple, but over life and death for eternity. Until we put our faith in Jesus and believe to receive what He has for us, religion rules within us. Jesus cleans our heart just like he cleaned the temple. And he does it for the same reason. Pure, right worship with God through relationship with him. You see, Jesus reveals God's work in salvation that we might know it's all about him. It's all about him. And that's John's purpose for writing and why it is that he records these events 
And why they are important for us to persuade us to see the work of God all around us through the Lord Jesus Christ. To see this and go, man, those kids just made a great decision. Those teenagers or those adults just made the right decision. Good for them. No, 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 no. This is God at work among us. This is God at work in our hearts and our lives. This is what God wants to do in the heart and life of every person. And if he's going to do it, he will have to crush The religious stronghold that's in every one of us. The stronghold that says, I want to be outstanding and I want God to say it. And I'll try to hold him captive until I hear it from him. Like my uncle used to say to me, say uncle and I'll let you go, right? I don't like calling people uncle anymore because of, no, I'm kidding. Friends, I want to compel you this morning with three reasons to believe in Jesus Three reasons that all of us should be compelled by. But I also want to help you understand that these these are not just something that someone who's not been saved yet should listen to. But every one of us in the room today needs to understand that these are keys for a clean heart to welcome and to cultivate the habitation of Jesus within us each and every day. That the moments of our life might have eternal significance for us. The first reason that I would compel you today is this. John compels us to believe because of the work of God in pursuing us that's all around us. That's the first thing we see here. Jesus, he's the acting agent here, right? He walks into the temple and he could have been put off and frustrated and aggravated and remained passive and apathetic about what's taking place. But Jesus is not apathetic about what happened in the temple and Jesus is not apathetic about what's going on in your heart. Zeal for the Lord's house consumes him. He has a passion and a burning desire to see you worship God in the right way as only God can make a way for us. Jesus is the one that's most passionate and the most pursuing of us out of a right relationship with God. You see, the real problem is we fill the realness of relationship with God with everything else in our life. And just like in this passage of Scripture, much of it is the good stuff. It's legitimate stuff of life. It's good, but the problem is we've made it God out of all the good stuff and when good stuff becomes God it busies and it distracts us from the true God's work and that's what the chaos of the temple and the commerce and the people going man I hope I get a fair exchange for my coinage I hope I'm able to purchase an animal that God might be uh, 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 satisfied with because last year all that was left by the time we got there was a three-legged lamb that was blind in both eyes And God's not ever happy with that, right? We laugh, but these people were dependent upon this. This was their access to God. This, they didn't believe that the sacrifice saved them, but they believed that it represented God's salvation to them. And anybody that brings a half-hearted offering to God says more about what they believe about God than they do just about the offering that they give. And that's why the people were so condemned in this temple commerce And the chaos was not only confusing them, but it was distracting them and causing them to miss God's work. And all of this was being led by the leaders. You see, we miss God's work. And we miss God when we dismiss what he's doing all around us. When we allow the things of this life to busy us and distract us. And we end up putting them, usually by neglect, usually by 
passivity, usually by apathy, we put them where they were never intended to be, where they should never be, and we end up valuing them in a way that they don't really hold true value. We look for the promises of God in everything God has given us instead of the giver of those good gifts to us. Jesus cleans out the religious activity of our hearts and of our lives, and he does it by confronting the religiosity of our heart to show us that it is opposing God's true intention for our lives in relationship with him. But once caught up by religion or or by other things that we practice religiously, we begin to substitute a legitimate seeking after God with a hollow activity that we label with God's name. And we become occupied and consumed until we wake up one day with the exhaustion of our striving, which is our religion, and we blame it on God. You been there? If God loved me, he wouldn't let me get this tired. He wouldn't let me be this upset with what's going on in my life. Or He would do something to get me out of this. Friends, he's done something. And it's the only thing that will get you out of it. Jesus' zeal that consumed him was for your heart. So you could become consumed with God. That's what Jesus was doing. Nothing we do matters if Christ is not at the center. But until you come to the point where you recognize the hollowness of your heart's busyness, you will get caught up in the activity and the busyness and you will be enslaved by religiosity. Jesus cleanses the religious trait of our heart that he might build true communion with God within us. Friends, God is working all around you. It's the work of Jesus to pursue you for a personal relationship. Are you seeing the signs he's put before you? The second reason that John gives us to compel us to believe is because of the witness of God's word in us. You see, believing Jesus to follow him begins in his word. Both instances, both of when he cleansed the temple and when he responded to his authority, verse 17 and verse 22, were both brought back to us because the disciples understood what was going on when they what? Remembered what was written. They remembered what was said by Jesus. You see, the word that the disciples remembered was alive right in front of them. Jesus' work is always a living revelation of God, of his word. That's why John tells us that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Friends, we're not just reading ink on paper, but we are reading the double-edged, sharper than any sword that divides soul and, and marrow. It cuts through the chaos and the clutter of our religious nature in our hearts, of our sin-stained souls, and it brings to us the light That is life for us in Jesus Christ. When the word of God lives in you, the word of God that is alive is working in you and constantly working in you. But more so, what is inside of you is there because of what God has said. You see, God bears witness to us of his work for us by his word so that his word that is alive in us through Jesus, the living word made flesh, brings us into deeper communion with him. I'm telling you, from start to finish, God is working that he might bring you into deeper communion with him. That's why he ended up ripping the curtain in two that separated you from him in the temple. 
Because he wanted to bring you all the way in, friends, to the deepest, most intimate place where you could hear from him, know it's him, and worship him for who he is. You see, the Pharisees had the same word that the disciples remembered, but John never tells us that they remembered. As a matter of fact, we know they didn't. Unless sometime after the New Testament account, they did. If the authorities had eyes to see, the cleansing of the temple was already assigned for them because it was prophesied as well. And they could have deciphered it through the Old Testament Scripture, of which they were masters. Kind of changes the name or the meaning of that title, doesn't it? It's one thing to read the Word, friends, and it's one thing to know the Word. It's a whole other thing to let the Word read and know you. And the difference between a living and a dead God is not that you can just know something about Him, but you can be known by Him. And that's what the Word of God does in us. We see our lives here, and we see God who has come to us in our lives, and He comes to life in us. The work of Jesus led the disciples to believe in Jesus because they, hear me, remembered God's Word. You see, remembering is not just something we have to do so God can get to us. It's the work of God in you as well. Jesus will teach us a little later in John 14 that he sends his spirit and it is the work of the spirit to, capital H, help us. And the way he helps us is to bring to remembrance the things that Jesus has said to us. So when you're in the living word of God, it is the living God within you that is working to bring this into you. You see, God bears continual and effectual witness to us of his saving work for us through his word that we might see Jesus and believe in him and receive eternal life. Friends, we have all we need to believe and to follow Jesus. But the question remains, am I demanding something more from Jesus before I will believe or follow? Is a sign the line that I've drawn that said, Jesus, if you want me, you're going to have to come to this side. That's what the Pharisees had done, and that's what religion does in your heart. You can live right next to Jesus all your life in religion and never know him in a personal relationship. And that's what Jesus is zealous to break through. Guard yourself, friends, that God's word is not taken in as a tic-tac to freshen things up in the moment and then quickly gone. Rather, receive it like a vitamin that continually commands the mind and strengthens the heart for the long haul. And every day you feast and you nibble and you drink from the one who is life for us. The living word of God strengthens and sustains us for the daily living of eternal life. The third reason that you must believe, that John compels us to believe, is because the crucifixion of the one who is God for you. That's what verse 22 means. Once he was resurrected, they looked back and they saw. God doesn't expect from you more than he demands from you. or, Or, that's what we believe, he expects something that he demands from us. He does not, friends. He supplies that for us. And so what he demands and commands from us and of us is to show us what he's already provided for us in Jesus Christ. We live in a blessed time. It's a time when we look back from the crucifixion and the resurrection and the brilliant glory of the resurrection shines across all the scriptures of the Bible and teaches us that it is all about Jesus. 
This isn't about you being outstanding for God. This is about God being stood up for you. That he might lay down his life willingly that you, what you could not do with even the giving up of your own life, could receive from him. We must learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key for all things in this life. When we seek God to satisfy the demands of our life, when we take a question to him, a concern, a frustration, an anger, a dissatisfaction, even a celebration, we must understand that he responds to us so much more than what we seek from him that, that, that when we believe him, we will, we will interpret and understand things through his word. And if we don't understand them through his word, we will miss the very thing that he's saying to us. You see, spiritual truths must be spiritually discerned. You can't come to this Bible and see God in the midst of it and worship him as he intended if he's not alive in you. And that's why we pray, Spirit of God, speak as the word of God is read and bring that to life to me. And so Christians must understand to see, uh, to learn to see and to understand all things through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God's not telling you what you've got to do to make him happy with you, to love you, or to accept you. He's showing you what he's already done in Christ. And when the, when the disciples looked back on this day and they understood what Jesus said, all of a sudden, man, a, a rush, a flood of living water came into their hearts because no longer did they have to try to attain something or achieve something. All they had to do was to believe and God would bring it in a measure that they could not contain. And friends, God wants to pour himself out in your hearts in that same way today. Religion is imposing on you a, a meaning to rituals, actions that claim to accomplish some work that they could never accomplish. And so here's what we do in religion. We play this game with God and we claim his grace through a means that never was determined to come. Baptism is what bestows grace. When we take communion through the bread and the cup, God brings his grace through it to us. We confess to someone and they assign us prayers and incantations and formulaic prescriptions that bring us forgiveness. But when you walk away from those incantations, the condemnation is only double as heavy because the kingdom has been shut to you because you are in religion and not relationship with God. For when we pray to God, we commune with the creator of all things and he himself comes into us and he washes us clean from the inside. And that condemnation is gone. Religion may occupy and satisfy you for a time, but only Jesus will save you. The gospel of Jesus gives meaning to all things. That's why it's so transforming. Hear me, friends. Life Life is not about trying to make sense of God and trying to make sense of the gospel. But life is about the gospel making sense of all things for God's 